Welcome back to Behind the Play. My name is Alex Adams, and today I'm very excited to introduce Arpan Basu of The Athletic, who covers the Montreal Canadiens. Thanks so much for taking the time and coming on. How's it going? It's going well, Alex. Off-season uh, off has begun, so enjoying watching the playoffs. Wish I was covering them, but uh, <laughs> that's okay. Watching them is a lot more fun, actually. So <laughs> Maybe a bit less stressful? <laughs> yes. Yeah, I shouldn't say a lot more fun, actually. Covering them is a lot of fun, but... Uh, Definitely less stressful, uh, less tiring. Um, it's nice sitting on my couch with a beer, just watching a game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, of course. Um, I first, I first want to get started and, and ask you a little bit about your career. When did you first think you might want to pursue a career in, in sports journalism? Uh, hmm. I guess I was in. Uh, I, I did my, I did my bachelor's degree. Uh, actually in film studies at Queens mm. and but the film program at Queens was very much geared on more towards writing about film than actually making films so mm. um I found it's actually it's kind of funny that the realization that I work well under deadline pressure is that <laughs> I uh I had a tendency to leave my essays till the night before and oftentimes many nights after they were due. And so I would bang them out in one night and found that I worked well under that, um, under that, under those circumstances. So, um, and eventually it just kind of dawned on me that there was nothing wrong. You know, you kind of look at sports as a diversion and, and, but then you sort of realize that no, there are people, lots and lots of people making their living doing this. Uh, I loved it. You know, I mean, so I, I, I spent more time watching and talking about and reading about sports than I did my academics. And so you to put those two things together and it just kind of dawned on me, like, why don't I, why don't I pursue this? So I went to uh, Concordia Journalism School after I did mm -hmm. a graduate diploma there and, uh, and went from there. But yeah, it was just kind of getting past the notion that this is sort of a frivolous yeah. career. Um, once you sort of get your head around the fact that it's serious and that they're, uh, and that you can make a, you know, a decent living doing it and why, you know, why not, why not do something you enjoy? And so, uh, I think a lot of people have a tendency to, uh, to think that their work has to be serious. Um, mm -hmm. and you know, thank God there are people who enjoy doing serious work because we need those people, but you can also just kind of pursue what you love and accept it as, as a legitimate thing and, and go after it. My my quick question is: Do you still work well under pressure? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. I still leave things to the last minute, and and I still, I still, um, I still write best when I absolutely have to write. And so okay. yeah, that has that has remained so uh, you know uh, uh, more than twenty years later. And 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 obviously you you said that. Uh, you leave things to, to the last minute maybe, or, or, or you need a deadline. What, what other aspects of your writing process? Like what, what, what do you do to, to shape a story? What do you look for? What's your process like? Uh, well, it depends on the story, right? I mean, when I'm at a game, um, you know, the process for writing about that night's game or writing off that night's game, I don't, I don't write about games necessarily all that much, but I do write, things based on what happened in the game. And that, that process begins at the morning skate. Um, you know, this, the whole Zoom era of covering hockey was, was difficult for many reasons. One of which was that we didn't get 
this access in the morning where you could lay the groundwork for what you were going to do later that night, talking to guys about certain things, you know, just getting a baseline of information heading into a game and then watching the game with that in mind, what you learned that morning, what actually played out, what they said afterwards and putting it all together and being like, well, this is what they hope happened. This is what actually happened. This is how they reacted afterwards is sort of my base. That's like my go-to process if I really don't know what I'm going to write about in a game. And so, you know, and, and that serves the purpose of always what I try to do whenever I write is just to have lots of context for everything. Everything that mm. I write has to be in a certain context and has, and, and you could draw meaning out of it when you add context to it. So as opposed to saying, well, the Canadians lost three, two tonight, or they won four, 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 one, or whatever it is. Uh, you know, if there's a particular player that's having, that's been having a rough time, uh, hasn't scored in a while, or hasn't been playing particularly well. If you happen to talk to him that morning, focus on that guy, see how he played that night. Did it continue? Did he change anything? Did anything he say he was going to do that morning actually manifest itself in the game? Um, that's one way to go about it, but you can't be just tunnel vision, only have that. Like, you know, you have to react to what actually happens in the game. So that's one, that's one type of story. Um, another type of story that I, that I enjoy doing is sort of, um, you know, writing about, let's say new players on the team, whether it's a draft pick or a guy they just traded for and try to get into their backstory. And that's obviously an entirely different process. That way you try to talk to his family, friends, former coaches, things, gather a whole bunch of information. Again, create context within all that, create like a, a sort of an underlying theme of what you've learned about this guy and, and how it, relates to every different stage of that person's life leading up to this point and try to provide a portrait to the fans of, okay, here is, you know, Caden Gooley, for instance, is a yeah. guy I did this with, you know, Jesperi Kakiniemi when he was drafted, I visited him in Finland to tell his story. Oh, wow. um, and, you know, Josh Anderson, when they traded for him, I tried to do that. Nick Suzuki, same deal. It's just to introduce the fan base to, to this guy and maybe go and, un, you know, sort of reveal layers of him, that you wouldn't know just by looking at a stat sheet or watching him play. So that's a different process altogether. Um, I find it it's probably more difficult because you're trying to sum up someone's life to a certain yeah. extent, and you don't and you want to you don't want to mischaracterize it. So it's really important to speak to as many people as you can who know this person. Uh, and once you see a theme developing, um, you can kind of stick to that theme and and sort of you know pretty much assuredly say that, okay, this is what this guy's all about. You know, about, you know, when you have like three, four or five different people tell you the same thing, you can go with it. So, so that's a different process. It's difficult, uh, especially when you have tons of source material. I remember hmm. my feature on Caden Gooley, for instance, took me forever, months, actually. Um, that was just because of circumstances. I got back from Prince Albert and the Canadians fired Mark Bergevin and then Dom hmm. Ducharme was fired and all sorts of things happened. So anyhow, but that case, I had like, I, I was so, I had so much, I had so many notes. I had, I decided to print them all out just so I could see them mm -hmm. physically. And I had like 30 pages of, of quotes wow. and notes and things in that. And so just taking all that and sort of piecing it together into a puzzle. Um, but yeah, finding that theme on the person 
is important when you're trying to tell a person's story, like not their life story, but just who this person is. Um, cause you want to get that right. It's yeah. really important that, uh, that you, that you not screw that one up. <laughs> I, I want to go off that a little bit and how do you develop these relationships with players, but also write critically and honestly and ask hard questions to the players or to management or whoever it may be. How do you maintain those relationships, but keep, uh, keep it honest and, and fair in your writing? Well, I think the, the vast majority of hockey people, whether it's players, coaches, management, whoever, um, they actually don't mind being criticized as long as it's fair. Hmm. You know, they know when they, they know when they did something wrong, they know when they did something badly, and they know that it's our job to point that out. And so if you do it in a fair way, um, you're probably never going to have a problem with anyone. Um, my rule of thumb is I will never write anything about anyone that I would not say to their face. Okay. So basically, if I feel comfortable enough telling a player that, you know, listen, I think you've been dogging it. Your effort's been, you know, your effort's been substandard. Then I'll write it. And yeah. more often than not, the player knows. Like if you're, if you're criticizing him fairly, then they know and they won't be upset about it. But there are, there are instances, I'll give you an example, for instance. Um, I think during the season, at some point I wrote a story about how, if if there is in fact incredible demand for Josh Anderson, which I had confirmed talking to a number of scouts who were, were just salivating at the thought of being able to acquire this guy. Mm -hmm. Well, if that's the case and you're in a rebuild, then you should, you should try and monetize that, you know? And so um, so I talked to Josh Anderson about it for the story and asked him, you know, he had, Ken Hughes had mentioned that he had a conversation with him. I asked him how that went. I asked him what he, how it would feel to be traded and everything. He, so he knew I was writing the story and then I wrote it and, and then I happened to be talking to him and I just told him, I was just like, Josh, just so you know, I'm not trying to get you traded. Like, that's not my goal. He knew I wrote that story. Yeah. Um, I feel it would be better for the organization and it would be better for you, frankly, to go to a team that's participating in the playoffs. You're a player who excels in the yeah, playoffs and right. this team's not going to be in the playoffs for a while. And so he kind of thought about it because he doesn't want to get traded. So he, he yeah. was kind of, I would say he was angry, but he was a little annoyed that I was sort of perpetuating this thing. And I, I don't know if you saw at the end of the season, he, he was asked by yeah. another reporter, not me, about his future and he got kind of he got kind of snippy yeah, about it yeah. but i think he appreciated that i went to him and talked to him about it and explained why i wrote the story and and he was fine with it he's like yeah okay i can see that that's fair uh you know i still don't i still hope i don't get traded i still don't want to be traded but i can understand how if it helps the organization i can see why you wrote that so hmm. And so that's just a way that you maintain these relationships. If you explain, if you're able to go up to a guy and explain yourself and say, Hey, listen, I wrote this. I don't know if you saw it, but I wrote this. This is why I did it. This was my thought behind it. If you have anything you want to say to me, go ahead. I'm right here. Say it. And uh, if you do that, I mean, I had, a, I had a similar situation with Thomas Tatar one year where I was saying the Kings had to trade him by the deadline. It was, he was, he was in the last year of his contract and on trade deadline day, they were practicing at the end of practice, I went straight to Thomas's locker and I was like, you're still here. He's like, you see, 
I told you. I told you I'd still be here. And he was laughing about it. But he's like, yeah, I saw you wrote those things. And I saw that. I was like, oh, you read that? He's like, oh, yeah, I read it. But he never he never said anything until then. Oh, so wow. you have to. So basically, the last like in order to maintain these relationships, you have to be able to go up to the guy and, and own it, you know, mm-hmm. like and, and if they and give them the opportunity, if they have anything they want to say to you, if they disagree, it, it, they could be angry. They could just want to correct you and say, listen, you said this. That's not really the case. It's actually this. You have to be able to do that. And which goes back to my initial premise, which you don't write anything you won't say to a guy's face because you got to face the guy. And so that inherently leads you to be fair in anything you do. And, um, you know, not everyone necessarily approaches it that way, but I find it's, it's easy to maintain a professional relationship with the people that you work with if you're able to do that. I, I find it really cool that as well that people might not know that, but you used to write for the NHL.com in French. And I believe the athletic has a French section that you write for, correct? And um, I don't write in French. I didn't write. Okay. I, I kind of manage, I kind of manage it at okay. the NHL and at the athletic. I sort of manage the French side. Okay. Just because I can read and speak French. Yeah. So I, I want to ask you a little bit about that with like managing that and, and, um, how much of the primary focus does French media, obviously you're in Montreal, um, place on or hockey, French hockey media place on the Montreal Canadiens over basically the rest of the uh, NHL in terms of its coverage? Uh, well, I mean, during the season when the Canadians are playing, it's yeah, it's wall to wall. It's interesting, actually, in the playoffs. And I learned a lot about this working at the NHL. So we launched the French side of the website. And my belief was that coverage of the rest of the league in French was a hugely underserved market because the Quebec media focused so much on the Canadians that I was like, okay, well, we will fill a hole and provide coverage of other teams. Cause it's just not true that all Francophone hockey fans are Canadians fans. Mm-hmm. Um, going through that process, I learned that I was extremely wrong. <laughs> <It> was, <laughs> those fans do exist. There are fans of other teams for sure. But they're not nearly as uh, mm. they don't consume media to nearly the same extent as the Canadians readers do. So, you know, we would get detailed metrics on all our stories at the NHL and how they performed. The only team that came even close to performing as well as the Canadians were uh, the Canadians did rather uh, were the Bruins. The only team. Yeah. Really? Why? The Otherwise, Bru- there's a lot of Bruins fans in Quebec. A lot. Do you have any reason uh, for that? The- my only reasoning for that is that just like there's a lot of like Yankees fans in Boston or Red Sox fans in New York, like, you know, your dad or your mom were big, such, you know, big fans of this team. I'm going to go for the team that my mom and dad hate, you know, kind of thing. Like mm-hmm. that's my only logical reasoning for it. There's also a generation that grew up watching Bob Yor and that there, there could be some fallout from that. He was, Bob Yor was a very, you know, at the, at the time, flying Frenchman, the Canadians had a certain style. Like, Bob Yor played like a Canadians player, kind of. You know, I, th- I could see a lot of people who who enjoyed that style of hockey falling in love with Bobby Yor and becoming Bruins fans as a result. But it's, yeah, it's definitely Bruins were second, and then Penguins and the Senators were, like, a distant fourth. And so, like, <laughs> I thought we were, I thought we were going to, like, really plug in on the Senators and, like, but the Senators right. franchise themselves yeah. have done such an awful job cultivating. I'm from Ottawa. They, 
They've yeah. been they've been terrible. Uh, I hope with new ownership as a as a Sens fan that it, it improves, but it has been terrible. Like if you go to Gatineau, I mean, there's this huge base in Gatineau. Yeah, like there's all these people there, and yeah, fine. Now they're Canadians fans, but you could have generation like by now they could have cultivated an entire generation of Francophone Senators fans across the river. It doesn't help that the rink is like a million miles yeah. away from Gatineau, yeah. but. Yeah, um, maybe yeah, the Senators the organization themselves. I mean, they only very recently started putting out their, their press releases and all those yeah. things in both languages. Even when I was at the NHL, we used to have to translate the Senators press releases wow. because their translation of their own press release was so awful. Wow. That we couldn't use it. That's interesting, so, too, like with yeah. Dorian being like a, you know, Francophone speaking GM as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I no. mean, it's I mean, it's just that's that's ownership that has to tell their PR department that yeah, this is a priority for us. It clearly hasn't been. Yeah, I think it is a little bit more now. Uh, yeah, recently in the last few years, and I've noticed especially now they have a lot of stuff with Shabbat and Matthew Joseph, like the francophone speaking players yeah. on the team. But they just have to see it as a business opportunity. I mean, it's just like yeah. they're just they're just ignoring. A significant percentage of the metropolitan area's population <laughs> like it just makes yeah. no sense no. yeah like, it, makes, it, makes... it would be like it would be like new york ignoring like brooklyn as a potential like <laughs> fan pool you know i mean it just makes it's just it makes... yeah it's always baffled me but but anyhow that's so yeah so to answer your question in you know sort of in a very long way um my experience has been that the francophone readers or people who consume media in french uh you know, we provide what they want. They want Canadians news. And that's why the off season for us at the athletic, like we, we don't stop writing about the Canadians, even though they're not playing. Like we just keep mm -hmm. pumping out stuff, doing sort of analysis, looking ahead to the off season, things like that. We just, we just dropped on Saturday, a huge sort of off season look ahead piece. And now we'll start preparing for the draft. And like, it's this, the people eat this stuff up. They'd much rather read this than uh, what's going on in the Seattle, Colorado series, for yeah. instance. Like yeah. it's just, it's just yeah. the nature of Kate. I always say that, you know, everyone talks about the sophisticated Montreal hockey fan and they are, uh, but Montreal fans are Canadians fans far more than they are hockey fans. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I, I thanks for, for explaining that all to, to someone that is in, in uh, Montreal consistently. I, I want to, ask you a question a bit of like a bit turning the page and and to ask about what has your experience been covering the game of hockey as a, as a person of color in a sport that isn't really to be frank as as diverse as it should be yeah it's an understatement um mm -hmm. i think it's been you know i remember my first day covering the canadians or the first time I was on the press box at the Bell Center and, uh, you know, I got, I got looks like not only was I a person of color, I was very young. I was 24. I have like a nose piercing. I had long hair. I got an earring. Like I, I don't really, I didn't fit the mold at all. Like looking even past the color of my skin, just generally how I presented myself was not the way mm -hmm. everyone else there did. So, um, so, you know, there were some people who sort of glanced at me and, you know, I felt um, I didn't necessarily feel welcomed, let's say. Yeah. So, so, you know, I kind of stuck to, um, you know, I, I took the approach of I'm going to learn how 
this world operates. I had no idea how things are done, how to conduct interviews with players properly. So for like the first, I'd say two seasons of my career, and I didn't, I wasn't always around the team. I was a beat writer. I was a stringer for the Canadian press. So I would cover games, yeah. you know, maybe 30 games a year, like a pretty, so I was there pretty relatively frequently, but I spent a lot of that time listening and just sort of getting the lay of the land and sort of figuring out. But as far as being a minority, I don't know, you sort of, you sort of get used to it, I guess, even before mm-hmm. I started covering hockey, you just sort of get used to it in life in general. You know, I mean, it's, I didn't come from a very diverse part of Montreal. Um, all my friends, uh, actually, a lot of them were Jewish. So there's a lot oh, of yeah. a minority, but it's still in terms of the color of their skin, I was in a very white milieu growing up. I always kind of, I was often the only white person anywhere I went. So that's something you just grow accustomed to. So I guess when you enter the hockey world, for me, it was not all that different than what my life experience. I mean, you know, talk about being in a white milieu. I mentioned I went to Queens. Like that's that's it's a, yeah, white, it's a white it's a white milieu. And so yeah. it's like so so you just get accustomed to that. So unfortunately, that's just reality. Um, have you seen, have you seen a difference in like I've, I, I just had Ian Mendez on, Julian McKenzie, like obviously people of color. Like, have you seen a difference in the media from when you were a 24-year-old to, to now in terms of diversity and maybe kind of inclusion? I mean, a little bit. Okay. The biggest difference is the awareness that there is is none, that there's no diversity, that at least there is an awareness. I mean, people sort of made fun of the NHL for putting out that diversity report that they put out. Um I forget what the percentages were, but but basically stating what everybody knew that, you know, 90 something percent white and this and that and heterosexual and very, very mainstream yeah. people who work in, in hockey. But just putting out the report and acknowledging that the problem exists and saying that we want to fix this is a huge step, massive, and like really did not deserve the level of, of mockery that it got just because they were stating the obvious, but that's not, that's missing the point. Reading the contents of the report was far less impactful than actually putting out the report. I see. And there, and there are ways I had issues with some of the things with that report, you know, it wasn't done by a third party. It was done internally. Um, you know, I think opening up your information to an impartial observer to, to, put out an objective report would have been more credible, but, uh, you know, knowing the NHL, that was never going to happen. So this is, that was this very, very significant moment to me in terms of improving the diversity of the league was that the league acknowledging and, and purposefully putting out their own report stating that, okay, here's the problem. Now we're going to attack it. You can have issues with how they're attacking it. You can have issues with all sorts of things. That does not change the fact that the NHL deciding to do this is a huge, huge step. And many, many years from now, when we see hopefully a diverse NHL with people from all sorts of backgrounds and all different thing, ways of thinking, and frankly, probably improving the way the NHL operates as a result, we'll look back at that as being the starting point of what hopefully eventually becomes a new 
NHL. I probably won't still be working in the league at that point. I don't think, I think it's very far away, mm-hmm. but it'll happen at some point. Well, if it does happen at some point, it'll be because this step was taken because yeah. they actually acknowledged it and decided that this, we need to do something about this. Uh, no, I, you, you said it so well. I think definitely people underestimate how much just talking about it and putting it up in the, like the air about racism and the lack of diversity, how much it, it changes basically how people talk about it and look at it, especially in a sport like hockey that's so white. Um, I I want to ask you before I switch to the Habs a little bit, what advice would you give to young journalists coming up in the industry? Uh, my, my honest advice would be to find another line of work. But it's, <laughs> I mean, unfortunately, the industry is just not doing so well. I mean, it's really unfortunate. And I get this question a lot. I talk to, you know, journalism classes and stuff. And so, but when you get past that, if you absolutely decide that you absolutely want to pursue this, and if you do go for it, you know, hundred percent, there are jobs that that exist and you can get them. Um, is, Is to always be improving. And the way you do that is to just do what you do. So as a writer, write, read, read as many different types of articles and people that you can write as many different types of stories as you can. I mean, my own career took off when I decided to start a blog of my own. And, you know, I had been stringing for the Canadian press for, I think, seven years at that point. Oh, wow. And so... Um, I didn't see, you know, I had been turned down for jobs. I didn't see a path out of that. And I couldn't, I wasn't making a very good living, you know, stringing for the Canadian Canadian press is great. It gave me a foot in the door. I will never say a bad thing about that place. I learned everything I know as a reporter, as a result of working for the Canadian press. Uh, But, you know, they don't, they don't pay their freelancers all that much. They're not. They're like a, they're, they're not, they're not a huge revenue generating business. You know, it's just, just facts. So I didn't see myself going very, going anywhere as a result of that. And so I started this blog, you know, I had some friends at the Gazette who they wrote, they had their own blog and, and, you know, colleague of mine, Mike Boone, who's always hugely supportive of my work. He would always like throw links to my blog out on the Gazette's blogs, the readership grew, it started getting some attention, a little community of people who commented on there grew, my own voice developed. I learned how to write more opinion columns, uh, you know, as opposed to the very straight, like here's what happened in the game stuff I was doing for Canadian press. I would finish that after a game. And so that was like maybe an hour after the game ended and then I would sit down and I would write this. And this allowed me to develop the writing voice I have today. So my advice, see, like I did that for free. So I would never tell anyone to do anything for free. Um, I eventually managed to turn it though into, I managed managed to sell it to the local CTV affiliate who started running it on their website. They paid me a modest sum for for it, but it was something. Um, So the main point of that is that had I not done that, I never would have, I never would have improved as a writer. I wouldn't have developed my analytical eye. Um, I wouldn't have figured out that line of what's fair and what's not. 
Mm-hmm. You know, there are things I wrote on that blog that if I had to do it again today, I probably wouldn't because I couldn't say those things to some to a player's face. You know, I didn't have that standard there, but that standard grew out of out of that blog getting a lot more attention and realizing that you have a responsibility when you have a wide readership to temper, not temper, but to just present things from both sides and present. And I'm not a, I'm not a hundred percent of both sides person, but it's just gotta be fair. You you gotta be able to tell the person what you wrote or else it's not fair or you're just a coward. Like, it's just like, you can't, you can't write something and then hide behind it. So mm-hmm. the worst thing is is people who who spout off on television and radio and or in print and never show their face in the dressing room. On yeah. one side, I guess that's entertaining and not having that accountability provides kind of catchier Ways. content. Yeah. yeah. But that accountability is important to me, at least. Like I think because then, you know, you can always go for that side, like the catchy side and like, be like, I'm going to be as controversial as I possibly can. It's easy to do that when you don't have to show your face in the room. But I've always been like, I want to be as fair as I possibly can. So I'll be critical, but I'm going to do it in a fair way. And that's that, that, that alarm in my head was developed because I started writing that blog. So, (laughs) so yeah, that's my advice is just do what you do and do it in as many different ways as possible because this is a very challenging time in in one way there's never been a better time to be in the position of being a young journalist there there are more ways to get your stuff out there that ever existed for me but there are so many more people doing that that you can just get lost in that in that zoo of of content that's out there and getting attention is a lot more difficult than it was when i was younger so it's a double-edged sword so you need to you need to pick a lane and you need to you need to just be consistent in that lane and decide what you want to be and go for it and yeah. and practice doing what you do in that lane uh, so you can become the best at it and i'm i believe that if you do that someone's going to pay attention at some point if you can find a platform that has any amount of reach good things should happen to you if you're able to become the best at what you want to be. Well, as someone, I, I, I guess I'm young, I'm 25, but I'm going to definitely take that uh, advice uh, with my podcast and everything. Thanks so much for for sharing that. And I want to move on a little bit to the Habs, obviously the team you cover. And what what did you make of the Habs season this year? Obviously they weren't expected to be uh a playoff team but what did you make of their season was it a success was it all right what did you think uh i wouldn't call it a success um i mean it but it was but it was it was it was not necessarily their fault i mean the biggest i guess the defining factor the defining feature of the canadian season is just how many people got injured and and which players got injured you know, Caden Gooley getting injured after getting off to such a great start. Uri Slavkovsky getting injured when he, there was clearly like a 10-step plan in his development this season that the Canadians had put in place and that he himself had sold, had signed off on and he had reached like step four. Mm-hmm. And so like never got the chance to kind of bring that to – so that was a lost opportunity. Cole Caulfield, you know, might have made a run for 50 goals had he stayed healthy and that like just what that would have meant for him. Um 
and and plus, you know, Nick Suzuki being the only one surviving, but having like really nothing around him. So in one way, it was somewhat beneficial. The Canadians got a look at players that they never would have had that not happened. I think Raphael Harvey-Pinard showed himself to be an NHL player. Um, Jesse Ullinen to a, to a lesser extent, maybe also, you know, there's some guys that, that really shined, but not that it's really not that many, like the Canadians still don't know what they have. And so in, in a very real sense, the season was kind of lost in that sense. And that, in that, you know, when you start a rebuild, you want to get a good sense of what your young players are about, but the benefit is that they're looking at a, you know, about a 50, 50 shot at getting a top five pick in this draft, which I don't think would have happened had all those guys stayed healthy. So um, ultimately big picture wise, it might be beneficial, but I don't think the season season would have been successful if you'd seen development from those guys that I mentioned on top of other guys. I mean, you know, there were some good development stories, Jordan Harris, I think, Mm-hmm. really sort of defined who he's going to be in the NHL. Whereas at the beginning of the season, I really couldn't see what kind of role he could play. Arbor Jackye emerging as, as just a really unique uh, individual player. Yeah. Like he's just, uh, he's going to have value for this team for a while. He's not going to be like a, a great scorer or anything, but he's, he's a lot more skilled than people give him credit for. And just that physicality and the skating combined uh, and Gooley is going to grow into a really physical player too. So they have really the two building blocks for like two really punishing defensemen on the back end in the future. Um, but, but there's just so much unknown or so much. Uh, yeah. There was so much more information that could have been gathered this season for a season where they knew they weren't going to make the playoffs. So that's the unfortunate part. It's, it's, so it's, it's hard for me to say it was a success, but it's hard for me to blame anyone for that lack of success also. I, I one of the other unknowns that I find with this team is is the goaltending situation and Montembeau I thought had a really good year considering as you mentioned all the injuries and and where do you see the like the goaltending like who's what's going to happen in net for the Canadians going forward is it Montembeau is it Jake Allen is it someone in the prospect pool what what do you think is happening there for the Habs Yeah I don't I don't think they have their goalie that's going to be the goalie when they're good um, Jake Allen and Montembeau are perfect for right now. It's really Jake Allen's perfect. He knows what the deal is. He knows he won't be around when the team is good. He's fine with it. Uh, he knows he's not going to play every game. He's fine with it. Not only did he have no issue with Montembeau taking starts for them, he uh, encouraged him to do it. It was he encouraged like the team has the perfect guy for this current situation. I'm of the mind that the goaltending question. Not that it'll solve itself, and I know it's a big priority for the Canadians this offseason to sort of acquire some young goaltending. Okay. Um, they signed um, Jakob Dobesh out of college, who they drafted in the fifth round, I want to say, a couple of years ago. So he had a really good year at Ohio State. They have some hopes for him. Caden Primo. Mm. I just heard about him for so long. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. like, I don't know. But no one knows. Honestly, you're in Ottawa. Yeah. Did everyone in Ottawa freak out when they traded Philip Gustafson? Like, did anyone see uh, this coming? Like, I, I, maybe not this, but I I was much more skeptical than other people. But yeah, like, I, I no one thought he'd be essentially so, as no candidate type goal. Yeah. So you look at the Wild, and they just fall into this guy. 
Yeah. Like who you could have asked the same questions about the to the wild and like what's gonna happen with your goaltending if Marc Andre Fleury can't tend goal forever, what's gonna happen? All of a sudden this guy just appears and and is great. I mean, the Colorado Avalanche won the Stanley Cup with Darcy Kemper last year. And like, let him leave. Darcy Kemp- and then let him leave because they yeah. realized he wasn't an important part yeah. of it. And and Georgia has been great for them. You know, I mean it's like it's I really feel like if you build your team properly you can always find adequate goaltending. Like, yeah. you know, if your team is really good, then then the bar for your goalie is competent. Like, I need a competent goalie who will make the saves he needs to make. I don't need a dominant goalie. And in fact, I think we're going to start seeing this more and more. But the tightening of the cap or the flattening of the cap made teams really think about how they allocate their assets. And so the difference between like, there's so few like truly dominant goalies in the league. You can yeah. count them on like one hand, yeah. you know, like yeah. it's, it's, and if that, like, it's really yeah, three. Like, yeah. And like, and you look at the Rangers with Shesterkin, I mean, Shesterkin was okay. a long road. Yeah. He was a late round pick. It took forever for him to get here. Then all of a sudden he's amazing. And then, okay, that changes things, you know, even Sorokin, Sorokin's a different story. They took him with a higher pick, but still, it's once Sorokin has to get paid, which is coming up very soon, they're going to have to pay him a lot of money soon. That changes the whole dynamic of how you build your team. So I'm of the mind that the Canadians, while they, I know for a fact that they have it, it's kind of top of mind for them that they need to okay. settle this. But I kind of don't feel the, I've, I've kind of changed my thinking on this. I don't feel the urgency to, to address the goaltending right away. Their goaltending right now is competent. Yeah, it's not. It's, it's not. just the team in front of them is not good enough for competent to be enough, you know? And so, but if the team is built properly in front of them, then all you need is competent. And there are tons of competent goalies. You can yeah. always find a competent goalie. It's yeah. just the superstars that are harder to find. I, I I was reading a bit of your piece about Caulfield and and you wrote that he he's expressed his desire to, to stay in Montreal long-term and obviously he's an RFA. So how, how likely do you think it, it is that the Canadians will be able to sign him long-term and, and maybe what kind of contract are Caulfield and his camp looking for? What Caulfield and his camp are looking for is, is the unknown. I mean, two really, uh, there were two really helpful things that happened for the Canadians this season. Uh, Dylan Cousins signing for seven years at 7.1 a year and Matt Boldy signing for seven years at seven a year. I don't think you can make the argument that yes, Call Caulfield scores more goals than those guys on a per game basis, but those guys do all sorts of other things that Cole Caulfield does not do. I don't think you can make a really solid argument that Cole Caulfield is that much more viable a player than either Matt Boldy or Dylan Cousins. Um, Jack Hughes in the middle of his second season signed for eight years at $8 million a year. Which is a super bargain for the Devils yeah. right now, and he is probably kicking himself. His wow. agent yeah. is the same as Cole Caulfield's agent, so I don't know. I mean, there are two there are two paths here. Cole is obviously good friends with Jack Hughes. Cole might see that and be like, "Listen, I don't want to tie myself into a number that might seem ludicrously low." three years from now. So maybe I'll sign a four-year deal, which is what Jason Robertson did. If that's the case, then this is going to be a sticky negotiation. 
because the Canadians aren't going to want to do that. Because Jason Robertson has basically walked himself to a year away from UFA when his contract runs out, and the Stars are going to be over a barrel. Like they're they all the leverage will be with Jason Robertson at the end of that contract. The fact the Stars even signed it is baffling to me. Yeah. Uh, but so the Canadians aren't going to do that with Cole Caulfield. And if Cole Caulfield wants to do that, then this this could go into training camp. Like it's you know I don't. But I personally, I don't think that's going to happen. I think. Their, their camp is going to look at the landscape that I just spelled out and they're going to find a number that makes sense within those parameters. And if he signs from anywhere between seven and $8 million a year, those are the parameters. So where he falls in that uh, is what remains to be seen. But I think if both sides are reasonable about it, it really shouldn't be difficult to come to an agreement. Like it just, the goalposts are right in front of you. It's really not hard to, Mm-hmm. to see as a reasonable person and, and be like, okay, well, he should fall. He shouldn't get paid like Jack Hughes gets paid and he shouldn't get paid that much more than Cousins and Boldy get paid if if he should get paid more at all. The Canadians mm-hmm. can even argue he should get paid less. Yeah. So I don't think it's going to be an issue personally. And and what else do you think Jeff Gordon and, and Kent Hughes will try to address this offseason? You mentioned goaltending. Um, there's rumors of Pierre-Luc Dubois. Like, w- what else do you think the Canadians will try to do this offseason? Well, I'm sure the Canadians are watching the, this Jets series right now with great interest. You know, I mean, it's because it's not only about Pierre-Luc Dubois for them. It's Mark Scheifele being a year away. Blake Wheeler at 37. His contract is up in a year. Like, you know, he's Hello. not part of the mix necessarily, but Hellebuck is up in a year exactly as you just – and and – uh, you know, you have Morrissey signed, you have Ehler signed for a bit, but like, what are they getting, what are they doing in Winnipeg? Like, what's going on there? And so if Dubois hasn't changed his mind, like if Dubois is open to signing there, then obviously the Jets would be interested. But if they decide to trade him, the only place they're going to get a decent return is Montreal, because now that Dubois put it out there, they, that's where he wants to sign what other team is going to allocate all sorts of assets to a guy, unless they can get an extension in place, um, they're not going to give up too much for one year of Pierre-Luc Dubois. So this can go one of two ways. The Jets decide they're going to retool and they want an interesting piece back from Montreal, in which case Canadians have a lot of, a lot of interesting young defensemen that they could offer. They have, uh, some forward prospects, but that are kind of far, that are not really close to the NHL yet that they could offer. So if they want something, if the Jets want something kind of more immediate, there's Josh Anderson, who has an 18 no trade clause. I'm willing to bet Winnipeg's probably on it. So that would be an issue. Um, But I don't know that for a fact. Or there are these young defensemen that the Canadians have a lot of. Um, They already turned Alex Romanov into Kirby Doc if they could do that with another one of their defensemen or even if it's a defenseman and they also have the Florida Panthers first round pick that they could put in there. There's all sorts of ways to make that kind of deal work, but it all depends on where Pierre-Luc was had head is at. We can't take for granted that something Pat Brisson said at last year's draft is still true today. It -hmm. might be, it might not be, but if that opportunity exists for the Canadians, it would be, you know, they, they have to pursue it. They have to. My, my question to you is just because he's a year away, is there any 
impetus on on the Habs just to wait a year and sign him as a free agent and, and save the prospect or, or draft capital? You could, but who knows what happens yeah. in a year? Like I just said, you know, a year ago, this is what Pat Brisson said. Who knows if that's still true today? Who knows if it'll still be true next year? Uh, but there's also the, the, which I think is valid, there's a valid school of thought that maybe the Canadians don't, necessarily need Pierre-Luc Dubois. I mean, if you look at, you look at Kirby Doc's emergence this season, Nick Suzuki is firmly planted as in one of the top two center spots. Um, for now they have Christian Dvorak as a third line center, Jake Evans. I mean, it's, it's, they don't necessarily need a center right now. And if they win the lottery, yeah. like, yeah. Then there, there could be another center coming. If they win either of the two lotteries, yeah. if they, if they're picking in the top two, they have another center coming. So lots of things can change. Um, I'm of the mind that if a player of Dubois talent in his prime wants to come play for you, there's all sorts of other reasons why the Canadians should want to add a player like Pierre-Luc Dubois, um, just culturally, uh, you do it. You figure out the positions and all that stuff later, you add the talent and you figure it out. Dubois mm -hmm. played on the wing. Dubois played on the wing primarily through junior like he was drafted as a winger he was converted he's very one of the rare cases of a, of a player being converted to center in the nhl um you know doc played on the wing this year like there's all sorts of ways to work around it but you know if you decide to wait till he hits free agency it does allow your own young players to show you that you don't necessarily need to allocate the nine plus million dollars it would cost to sign this guy um so that's another possibility. But, you know, I think the beauty of the situation for the Canadians is that if the Jets want to trade him, great. If not, then that's fine too. Yeah. They just keep doing what they're doing, you know, but I think they would view this, you know, one thing you hear Jeff Gordon and Ken Hughes say is that they want to do things the right way, but if there are ways to accelerate the rebuild process, they will do it. They saw the Kirby Doc trade as an accelerator. I would think they would view Pierre-Luc Dubois turning 25 on June 24th. So he's a young player with a lot of experience and a lot of good hockey ahead of him. I would think that they would see him as a, as a big accelerator of the rebuild process. And, and to go off the accelerator comment, I know you wrote about the Habs and the P word, meaning making the playoffs and like how realistic, even if like a guy like Pierre-Luc Dubois joins the team that, that the Habs can be a playoff team next year or even in the next two, three years. Well, two, three years is something else. Next year, it's not realistic at all. I mean, it's, it's look at, I mean, just look at, look at the team in Ottawa. Yeah. I mean, the way I look at it, if I'm the Canadians and, and I, I, I do think that they share this viewpoint is that, and we did a piece earlier this year, Marc-Antoine Godet and I, about just the landscape in the Atlantic division in general. So you have the big three at the top. I think there's a way to see that in the next four years, Boston and Tampa falling off. Toronto has contract issues coming up. There's going to be, there's going to be some sort of power struggle yeah. at some point coming up soon. Um, but uh, the Canadians are far from being the best team positioned to fill that void. You know, Ottawa's in a better spot. Buffalo's in a far better spot. Buffalo's probably in the best spot. Uh, Florida's, I don't see Florida getting much worse in the next yeah. little while. Like it's, it's, they're, they're kind of, they are kind of who they are. Oh, yeah. 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 And, um, and Detroit, 
is maybe a little further back among the like I group, you know, there's the top three, there's Florida, and then there's that Buffalo, Ottawa, Detroit section maybe in that order. Yeah, maybe in that order, but Detroit's building something. Um, and then there's Montreal. Montreal's at the bottom of all that. So not only do they have to get past the big three, they have to get past the other four teams we just mentioned. And they're so far from doing that. So they need a bunch of these accelerators because they're starting a race much later than all those other teams did. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's their reality. But, you know, Jeff Gordon was asked about it at the end of the season. And he was like, well, we just prefer to focus on what we're doing. But the reality is, is that if they do want to make the playoffs, which I think, just to be clear, I don't think Ken Hughes said that by trying to say that yeah. this team should be in the playoffs. All he's saying is that that should be our goal. Yeah. Like we are, we are, and what he's also tacitly admitting was that this year, and he said at the beginning of the year, it wasn't about winning games. It wasn't about, it was about development and frankly, management, you know, every time the Canadians lost, they weren't all that upset about it. They were pretty happy actually. Yeah. So I think it was also a message to his players like, okay, that was true this year, but Not- next year that's no longer true. Like, there was a funny incident during this well, incident. There was a funny moment during the season. It came right after. Uh, so the Canes were in Philadelphia, and basically management told Marty St. Louis that we want you to put Sean Farrell in the lineup. Hmm. And Marty was not happy about it. Okay. He had just arrived from, from Harvard. Like Harvard's season had ended a few days earlier. He had just arrived in town the day before. No practice, no morning skate even, because the Canadians were on a back-to-back. Threw him right in the game. So after the game, when he was asked what made you think Sean Farrell was ready to play tonight, he said, that's a question for Ken. Ken Hughes. Um, So as a result of that, Jeff Gordon spoke to some of the reporters who were there. I wasn't there and sort of explained that we want to see this guy. And, and, uh, you know, Kent had mentioned that as soon as they sign the guy, they want to get him into games as soon as possible to see what, how he, how he reacts. The next day or the next game, the Canadians were playing the Panthers. Now, now the Canadians had incentive to win because if they can keep the Panthers out of the playoffs, that draft pick yeah. is much better. So at the end of the morning skate, Marty gathers the team around. At one point, he points up to the stands, and Ken Hughes is sitting up in the stands, and he kind of waves to the team, and they all look at him. So we're like, what the hell just happened there? And one of the players mentioned to my colleague, Mark Antoine, he said, well, what Marty said was, you see your GM up there? He wants you to win tonight. As opposed to the other nights, right? (laughs) So, yeah. Wow. So there was like this little, you know, there was this. So basically what Kent was saying when he said we shouldn't start next season thinking that we can't make the playoffs. Mm -hmm. What he was telling his team is that that's over. Yeah. Like that's finished. Like Marty pointing up to the stands and telling the team like, hey, your GM wants you to win tonight. Next year, your GM's going to want you to win every night. And that's what what happened this year is done. We're moving to another phase. But I think even Kent would admit that making the playoffs, there's no realistic path to the Canes making the playoffs this year. Probably not next year, maybe two years from now, but a lot of things are going to have to fall right just because the division is such a, is such a dog. Like there's just so much infighting that's going to happen there. Yeah. Yeah. Just with Marnie St. Louis and I was going to ask about him, but what's his relationship like with, with management and Ken Hughes? Like that sounds a bit. It's excellent. No, it's, I know it sounds, it sounds a bit just because that was Marty trying to get his team up to play a game, you know, 
And that's kind of a typical, it's not the first time a coach has put it like an us against them sort of narrative together. And, and it's not a big deal. It was just interesting. It made for good. No, fun. no, no. That's a great story. And it's, but, but he, uh, he's on board with everything, you know, I mean, he knows, and that's why he was able to deal with this season the way he did. You never, almost never saw Marty get us. Actually what made the whole, that's a question for Kent thing. So striking is that he hadn't done that. He looked annoyed at that situation and he hadn't looked that way all season. And there were tons of opportunities for him to lose patience with the losing with us as media members asking questions um, but he didn't because he understands the plan. He gets it. He knows that the Canadians are nowhere near where they need to be to be competitive. Um, he's the perfect, he's really the perfect coach for this situation. You know, he's really, I've been nothing but impressed by that guy. He's, he communicates with his players in a way that really resonates with them. Um, his hall of fame credentials obviously help, but he just understands where they're coming from and is able to make corrections while acknowledging that or while putting himself in those situations. You know, I, I talked to a bunch of players on what it's like to be in the video room with Marty. And that was one of the things that came out the biggest, like it's, you know, Joel Edmondson was like, it's like your teammate is talking to you. Hmm. Wow. And, and so, you know, his message gets through and he has, he has a very good way of making presenting ideas in a compelling way like as a reporter he's a dream like he, yeah, he says so yeah. many quotable things um because he explains things in interesting ways but he does that with the players as well and so it gets them engaged uh and so he's really he's really ideal for this and that's why he was upset about the feral thing is that he had a process in mind of yeah. how he wanted to get him into the lineup to give him the best chance of succeeding and that wasn't it. Just throwing him in was not it. Was not the way he wanted to do it. So, but he had he had the kids' best interests at heart. Like you know, like it wasn't a thing about him versus management. It was just he thought management was wrong in this instance. And eventually, Farrell got scratched, sat out a few games, yeah. and came back and was better. So, mm -hmm. do you, but do yeah, you, do you think he's the right guy when the team starts to become? closer to a playoff and maybe much more of a competitive team. I don't know. We'll have to find out. Yeah. I'm not sure. I don't think he knows either. Like one, the one great thing about Marty is that he, he understands his limitations. He understands how much he has to learn, how little he, how little experience he has. There's a lot of game management things that he has to learn. Coaching the playoffs is a completely different animal than coaching in the regular season uh, he's going to have to learn that, but every coach had to go through that. John Cooper had to go through that. Uh, Sheldon Keith has gone through that and maybe coming out the other side now, but he's made mistakes in the playoffs. It's been a little too laissez-faire sometimes with his club. And he's realized that, no, I have to, I have to make decisions and be more decisive at times. It's, it's, it's hard. Like the playoffs don't, you know, the playoffs don't offer sample size. The playoffs don't, reward process all the time no. sometimes in the playoffs you have to make a quick decision and change things quickly or else you're at or else all of a sudden you're down three nothing and that's it so he's gonna have to go through that at some point and i'm sure and the other thing is that when expectations change the way his team is covered is going to change and he's going to have he's going to have to deal with 
questioning of his decisions, second guessing, all the unpleasant things that coaches hate about coaching in Montreal. Like he didn't have any of that this year. Yeah. We were the most, I can't, I can't think of a loss where one of his decisions was really put into question by the media because yeah. everyone knew everyone was on the same page. Wins and losses don't matter. So even after losses, you'd be like, Oh, how do you think, you know, how do you think uh, Jonathan Kovacevic played on the penalty kill tonight? Like these just a total mm -hmm. just questions that have nothing to do with the game. That's not going to last much longer either. So I'll be interested to see how he reacts when he gets pushed back from the media. Cause he's been very pleasant because frankly, we've been very pleasant with him. Mm -hmm. So, but when their expectations, like this is the first time I covered a team that entered the season saying, we're not going to make the playoffs. Wow. I've yeah. never covered a team like they've been really, they've been bad Canadians teams I've covered, yeah. but they've never started the season saying that we're not. So it completely changes the dynamic of, of how you cover the season. Like when they're not, when they're openly saying they're not trying to win, how can you be holding them to account and asking the tough questions? Why didn't you win this game? Well, they've already told you that they're not trying to win this game. Like it's, it's not, so it's not about that. But once they say that they're trying to win the games, then our questioning will change and we'll see how Marty in turn handles that. Cause when he was a player, he could, he could be prickly. It was not the, he was not the kindest interview in the world as yeah. a player for sure. Yeah. I, I, but before I let you go, I, I want to ask a little bit about your Slavkovsky. Obviously his, his rookie year was up and down, probably a bit underwhelming for, for Habs fans. Do you think the team will keep him up in the NHL next season or maybe develop him in the AHL or Europe, what do you think's next for Uri Slavkovsky next season? Uh, they will, I, I can't see a scenario where they don't keep him in the NHL. And frankly, I, I had no problem with his, with his yeah. rookie season. I mean, yeah, it wasn't very impactful, but when you talk to the guy, like all the, there were a lot of fans who were worried that the Canes were destroying his confidence. Mm-hmm. Except if you talk to him, you could see that his confidence was not only not destroyed, it was thriving. Like he was just the fact he was in the NHL was giving him so much confidence. Like it was huh. like, and he's 18. Yeah. You know, he's 19 now, I think, but he was 18. He's, he's, he's coming from playing in the Finnish league to this. Now he's in the NHL and like playing in the Finnish league and not really getting the minutes he should have gotten, not playing in offensive situations. Like a big reason the Canadians put, brought him to North America was that they needed to get him out of Finland. Hmm. Like they did not want him staying in Finland. They did not like the direction he was taking there. But as I mentioned earlier, they had a very specific plan of action for him and he was getting there. You know, Marty had a great analogy with him was that, you know, he uses a lot of baseball analogies, but with him, his analogy was that he got on base a lot on his shifts. And that's, that's what he wanted. Go yeah. out there, have a shift and get on base, do something to get on base, whether that's a hit, whether that's a battle one in your, in your defensive zone, whether that's making a good play in the neutral zone, go out there and get on base. Mm -hmm. You don't have to hit a home run every time, but go get a base hit, get a walk, get hit by a pitch, do something to get on base. And he was starting to do that more and more towards the end of the season. Well, towards his end of the season, which was in December. And so 
you know, I, I'm not I'm not overly worried about him, frankly. He's going to come back. I spoke to a number of players on the team who think that he's already maybe the in the top five of guys on the team in terms of strength in the wow. weight room at 18. Yeah. So I think when, like, the tools are there. And, you know, that's what made the Canadians so high on him is that you don't get his toolkit in a six foot two, 220 pound frame. I don't even know if those are something like that, but it's, you don't, you don't get that every day. And that's, that was a big reason why, like, and you see it now in this year's draft, like they looked at this year's draft and were like, where's this guy in that draft? Mm -hmm. Like he doesn't exist. Yeah. There's no one in this draft. I mean, Matthew Wood is kind of a big guy who who has like a skill set like that, but are they going to necessarily get that guy? I mean, it's, you who know, knows? there's not. So they looked at last year's draft and it was underwhelming. I, I think Cooley was probably second on their list Okay. at that point. I can't, I haven't gotten that for sure confirmed, but that's my own opinion of it. And because Cooley had a dynamic, there's a dynamic element to him that that differentiates him. But the Slavkovsky combination of size and skill is uh, is something that the Canadians view as very rare and very hard to acquire outside of the draft. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. just not, it's just teams that have players like that don't trade them. Yeah. That was their thinking. So since the draft was kind of a down year anyway, even though they had the number one pick, they're like, let's take the guy that's the rarest, the rarest specimen in this draft, and then hopefully we land a, you know, a, a higher end skill guy this year, which they're in position to do. Frankly, their most likely spot is sixth. They're going to get a pretty good player at number six if that's where they land. And mm-hmm. if they win, then obviously we know what the yeah what the what the result of that would be. Yeah, um, I guess. Lastly, before I let you go, I guess what would be a successful season next year in your mind for the Canadians? I think a successful season next year would be very similar to what the Senators had this year. Okay. You know, playing games in March that matter, that are that have consequence, um, getting their young players to feel that kind of pressure uh the buzz around the city building you know i mean it's it's a very different like listen the canadians are obviously when they're in like the canadians feel it walking down the street you know people recognize them but when they're winning there's a different buzz that you have to manage as a player and you gotta it's something that you have to get used to so um creating some of that would be a successful season so if they're on the fringes of the playoff race like not only Ottawa, but like Buffalo, even Detroit, like Detroit yeah. going into that game against Ottawa, that yeah. big blowout game. Yeah. Both yeah. those teams needed to use that game as sort of a launching pad to make a run at the end. Right. And so it turned out to be Ottawa using it and not Detroit, but you want the Canadians to play in games like that. Yeah. And that would be a successful season. Mm-hmm. Uh, thanks so much, Arpin, for, for taking the time and, and, and coming on. I just want to give you the floor. Is there any pieces you're working on that people should keep their eyes and ears open for? Or just the floor is yours. Yeah, we'll be, we'll be doing sort of our off-season thing. Um, you know, I'm going to 
take a look at some of the Canadians prospects playing in the playoffs right now in juniors. Uh, that'll be coming up pretty soon. Um, Mark Antoine and I are going to the combine, obviously in Buffalo. Um, have lots of content coming out of that, but we will start digging in on the draft a little bit um, coming out of the U18s, try and gather some intel. But no, nothing specific. But just you know, just because the Canadian season is over doesn't mean our season is over. We'll be producing stuff right up till the draft, free agency, everything. So yeah, keep it tuned to the Athletic for uh, for what we have in store. Well, uh, thank you so much for for taking the time, Arpin, uh, for for coming on. I hope for you that uh, you uh, the Habs win the lottery and gives you a little bit more extra content and uh, excitement for the fan base. But either way, uh, I'm sure uh, next season will be a bit more exciting and, and maybe uh, stressful than uh, than last season. So thanks so much for, for taking the time. All right. Thanks, Alex.